What up, peeps? Welcome into Unscripted and Unprepared, brought to you by Real Screen Magazine. I'm Jimmy Fox, and this episode is the special 2019 in review with APA's very own Brian Spicer. We recorded this just a couple weeks ago at this past Real Screen, and as you're about to find out due to technical difficulties, we recorded this in the most unexpected location imaginable. Trust me on that. Uh, I have to say the views expressed in this episode are solely those of Brian and myself. Hang to the very end. We hand out some awards, the Not Real Screen Awards, 2019 in review. I hope you enjoy it. I want to paint a picture for you guys right now. We are in New Orleans. It's like pretty much day one. It's the Monday. I'm feeling great because I did my panel with Dan and Jane, and it went well, and I've got all the pressure off of me now for the rest of my time here in New Orleans. And I was like – I text Brian. I'm like, hey, man, instead of like doing this in a conference room, why don't you come up to my room? I've got my mics. Why don't we get a couple beers at the bar, and let's do our 2019 episode, right? And you're like, yeah, great idea. We get up here. I start plugging in the mics and everything. And I am picking up an AM New Orleans jazz station, <laughs> and you have the bright idea, well, let's try it in your bathroom. So we are now in my bathroom. No jazz station is currently coming through, and Brian Spicer, power agent from APA, is sitting on my toilet, and we are sharing a tiny, tiny little side table seated in my hotel bathroom. <laughs> and that is the dedication, folks, that I bring to you, the loyal peeps, to get this very critical 2019 in review episode in the can, we are going to record this entire thing in my hotel bathroom. We had a lot of fun doing this episode last year, so we're like, let's do it I once again. I can't believe it's been a year. I know. It's I know. It's been a year. It's been one year since we recorded the last one. But it's like a lot longer. <laughs> but people, people really seem to enjoy it. I mean, we got a lot to talk about. You put on the list the year of M&A. Yes. So walk me through some of the big M&A stories from 2019. CBS Viacom, Endemol Shine Banerjee, uh, movement in the agency world, Paradigm flirting with UTA and having that near miss, Vice buying Refinery29. It seems to be in every category. The Vice Refinery29 story totally went over my head. Mm. I wasn't even aware of this. So walk, walk the loyal listener through what, what that deal entailed. Well, Vice is a, has become a multifaceted kind of company. It's you know, the network, it's a creative agency, it's a brand above all. And I think the digital video business at large has been challenged in a number of different ways. And it's just really, really hard to make money. And scale absolutely matters. I mean, you know, Jennifer Peretti, who runs BuzzFeed, almost famously said that all the publishers should get together and just create one big company so they have enough scale to actually make money in the business. And well, I don't think that's going to happen. Um, you'll see it on a smaller scale. And that's why Vice bought Refinery. Endemol, Shine, Banerjee, so the year of M&A, and you also put in our notes uh, to prep for this, the year of consolidation, Viacom, Discovery, Comcast, Cable Nets, mm -hmm. uh, Turner, Warner Media, increasing AETN connectivity. What did you mean by that? When you put that in our notes, increasing AETN connectivity, what, yeah. what is that? Well, I think that you, know, you see the formal creation of a network group affiliated studio in six West and they're a really great group, but you know, it's, it's abundantly clear that they're taking a page from almost the MTV networks playbook and that they're acknowledging their IP might be valuable and that they can service their own networks to a degree. 
uh, by making their own content, and then to the extent their content isn't appropriate for those networks, that there may be a way to produce for other places. But they haven't followed the same model as the Comcast cable networks have, as the Viacom cable networks have, with the same executives overseeing or programming across multiple networks. That's true. We haven't seen that across AETN. Mm-hmm. We, we see the musical chairs right. take place. Uh-huh. But don't you think that could be something that happens in the foreseeable future? It's possible. I mean, it's the clear trend in the business right now is fewer people overseeing more things. By the way, if you hear a little jiggling, there's not like a kitty cat running through my hotel room. That's Brian's lanyard, uh, the, the, the thing they make us wear from the conference. Uh, and and it's, he's wearing the lanyard, sitting on my toilet. I'm just looking at you right now in your beautiful blue suit with, <laughs> your, off. with your, beautifully qua- your beautifully quaffed hair, sitting in my bathroom right now as we're doing this, <laughs> breaking, down, breaking down the X's and O's of what's going on in our industry. Yeah. Here we are, my man. How fitting. You are such a trooper. You're, such a, you're the only guest I can ask to do this. We'll talk after the podcast. This is why you're the first, you're, this is why you're the first two-time guest. I'm the first return guest? You are the first return guest in the history of this uh, podcast, the four years or so we've been doing it. Is that a good thing? Because... The peeps will have to answer that question. But there is a curse associated with your podcast all right we'll get to that in a little bit <laughs> i think i think we need to talk about it all right the year streaming got competitive yes next topic disney plus mm-hmm. launch hulu's foray into the food space and seemingly gonna maybe be open to some more stuff in the reality space hbo max's buying spree just jumping out the gate being mm-hmm. very aggressive in the marketplace quibi has been aggressive the, for the past year peacock uh, which I, I'm fortunate to have a couple projects over there right now, one of which is uh, Punky Brewster, which is very exciting. But they are being very aggressive as well. And uh, Apple Plus. So we're now at this place where in 2019, seemingly overnight, we had like six new places to pitch, right, from the yeah. start of 2019 on. Mm-hmm. And as we keep moving forward, you know, some of these platforms I just listed are still kind of in like nation stages mm-hmm. and uh, Quibi hasn't even launched yet. Quibi won't even launch till April. I don't think Peacock really launches until – hardcore launch isn't until I think after the Olympics mm-hmm. when they've had time to kind of market Gym, around yeah. it. And uh, Disney Plus not buying a ton on the unscripted mm-hmm. side. It has to be connected to the Disney universe. But this is exciting. But I feel like it's the same conversation we had last year where we did talk about OTT launches. Uh-huh. And we talked last year where on, on its face – this seems like a great thing. Right. Because more buyers, more places to sell. But what it really comes down to is no, it just means those same A-listers. J.J. <laughs> Abrams J. J. and Abrams, Spielberg can right. sell more shows it, to more places. If there's six new platforms, it's just six new places for Reese Witherspoon mm-hmm. to sell a show. Right? And you made a really astute point last year, and I don't see this ever reversing, where you said there was a eroding middle class yeah. of producers. And that really stuck with me. You said that last year. And that really does seem where we're at. Yeah, most definitely. Like I remember a long time ago being in a meeting with Ben Silverman and Mark Burnett. Mm -hmm. And it was me and David Eilenberg. And I know I've told this story before, probably when Eilenberg was on the show. And Mark Burnett looked – this was a long time ago. This was back in like I want to say 2010. We're sitting in a room with Mark Burnett and Ben Silverman. And Mark at one point breaks his conversation off with Ben and looks over at me and David Eilenberg who are both running Mm -hmm. development for each of these guys. And he says, if you two – if you two – Wanted to go start your own production company, just the two of you, you couldn't do it. You couldn't do it these days. You can't. Mm-hmm. The deals aren't good. That was 10 years ago. That was 10 years ago. He felt that way. Uh-huh. And now I can't imagine bootstrapping 
like new company, not having had any like previous credits. I can't imagine just starting a mom and pop shop right now completely indie. And uh-huh. my hat goes off to all the guys out there in recent years that have done that, like Ari Mark, you know, and other dudes that just kind of like bet on themselves and had like very little seed money, mm-hmm. if any seed money. In this market to now come in as an upstart, you're going to have to really have a great piece of talent and a, and a, you know, a lot of leverage mm-hmm. and a bidding war to withhold a production if you're just a baby production company. That's right. I want to just be clear that I'm, I'm really bullish still. I think it just requires navigating the marketplace with an awareness of how these new players work. And so you can still be profoundly successful in this business as a producer, but, and you're a testament to this. You, you just acknowledge, you know, you've got a couple great shows with Peacock, including Punky Brewster reboot. Congratulations. Thanks. That is great. All right. And when you look at who is succeeding, it's people who, you know, have a really clear point of view. It's people coming from the doc side on the fresh voices, doc directors, doc producers who are realizing a foray into series television. The people who are thriving right now have a good story to tell and aren't aren't concerned with business as usual or this is how it used to be. We have to talk about it because we have to know where things are going. You know, you have to know the history. But the people that are making it work regardless are the people that are willing to adapt and willing to change. And that can be really, really hard sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I totally acknowledge that. And trust me, we're seeing it, but Dude, you, you talk you about, do it. you talk about change and, and needing to pivot. It's, we haven't talked about this before, but you know, I still feel, you know, I'm in my thirties and for whatever reason, I still feel like I'm part of like an early, like a late later class, mm-hmm. right? I feel like there's this great class like to use like a high school analogy, right? I right. feel like there's these upperclassmen that came ahead of us, you know, highly successful people like the Sally and Salsanos right. and you know the Foremans and right. there was a the, moment in time right. and these larger than life producers were e- born. Eli, you know, as well as mm-hmm. is up there, you know, all these guys. I'm not saying they're grandfathered in because they established themselves at like just the right time to be making these types of shows, right. but I feel like w- we also witnessed on the flip side. You now see people of that established class ahead of my class. There are people that couldn't make the pivot. Mm-hmm. There are people that came up making, you know, comedic doc series, sure, you know, and doing all these different types of fun doc shows that like now would not get greenlit, right? And more and more networks got specific uh-huh. and found a, a clear, you know, differentiated lane that pro- program in. More cable networks wanted to go quote unquote premium. And certain producers of that previous class couldn't make that pivot. And you've now seen some very – well, were very successful production companies. You've seen some people like just either lose their deals right. or fold as a company because the class ahead of me couldn't pivot. Yeah. When we all feel it every day. And it is – our business is harder than ever. And – but at the same time, this is, this is the way of the world, right? Every business changes. It doesn't matter whether you're an attorney, whether you work in the automotive business, whether you work in retail. There's always disruption. And I think the way things are being disrupted now where tech companies that are basically replacing jobs through algorithms and through leaner and meaner operations that are more global in nature, it's just doing it in a way that is – very obvious and personal and I think amounts to a lot of stress for people. 
it's impossible to ignore. But again, there's still a lot of great opportunity. We were also part of the golden age of television. Right. You know, well, the golden age our genre it. is now one of the most premium genres in entertainment. Yeah. And that's true. One of the most desirable genres of entertainment. But okay. I, will, I will say one thing, though. Yeah, that, yeah we got, the bright side is coming, folks. The bright side is coming. Yeah. Right. It's not all gloom and doom we're, in we're Jimmy's bathroom. Get, we're about to get the. <laughs> but, <laughs> excuse me for a second. It's not... Had to happen once. We're not making it up. I'm actually on a toilet. See, look, that's going to now take right. 20 I'm, seconds to, I... to cycle the new water into the toilet. Right. Jimmy asked me to take a bath. <laughs> Prior to the podcast, I thought he was kidding. Um, yeah, I mean, we're part of a really exciting expansion in a certain area of the business. And, I mean, you're doing a podcast right now. The business didn't exist a couple years ago, all right? The way we interact with source material, the the possibilities for what happens when a show succeeds and how many people see it and how culturally relevant it can be are more exciting than ever. And I love that, you know, and I that I've been a part of things that have been that my, you know, my clients have made that have been part of the cultural zeitgeist in a way that would have never been possible. And so, yeah, it's hard, but again, if you're able to navigate the waters, it could be incredibly profitable and rewarding too. And it's again, not without stress, but there's a lot of really great stuff happening too. Well, let's, let's talk about the upside of working Mm -hmm. in reality right now. Although it is seemingly the hardest time ever, Reality-based cable networks are the ones doing the best because let's get into ratings. Okay, that's our next topic. Mm-hmm. The ratings bubble this year bursted. It seems like we were dreading this for the last few years. It was something that we all didn't like to talk about in our industry. We come to this conference every year and mm-hmm. we're always like, oh, where are things going? How is digital going to you know, penetrate and you know, affect ratings whatnot? How are these OTT platforms going to take people away from overnights? And then overnights were like a thing of the past. Now it's the plus three. Now it's the plus sevens. Now it's like total impressions across multiple platforms. This is the new reality is that cable network ratings are only going to go down. And across the board this year, we saw double-digit dips pretty much across the board. Some more significant than others. I just want to give you some of the stats. You ready for this? I'm ready. Listeners, I know it's called unscripted, unprepared, but your boy came prepared. prepared. Your boy came prepared for this one because I think this ratings thing is fascinating. Live. Live is where it's at. Live is what's working. And I'm just talking about basic cable right now. Fox News, MSNBC, and ESPN were one, two, three in total viewers for cable in 2019. In the adults 18 to 49 demographic, non-news, ESPN was number one with an average of 730,000 viewers, followed by USA Network with 510,000 viewers. That was their average as the number two cable network, non-news, in 1849. TBS and TNT were next on the list in total viewers. Now, double-digit viewership drops for most of the major entertainment cable networks. That was the trend in this last year. Here's the thing, talking about reality and why it might be a good time for reality right now. General entertainment networks relying heavily on scripted programming as well as nets targeting kids were the hardest hit despite getting delayed viewing bumps. So USA, which was the most watched cable network for almost a decade, slipped another spot from number four last year to number five in total viewers. It was down 18 percent. 18 percent. It only slipped one spot and it was down 18 percent in total viewers. In 18 to 49, it was down 16 percent. Total viewer dips. AMC was down 22 percent. FX was down 21%. TBS down 17%. TNT down 15%. These are, again, cable networks that are predominantly scripted. Mm -hmm. Adult Swim, 
was down 23%. Oxygen was down 13% in total viewers. Surpriser. HGTV was down 10%. HGTV was down 10% in total viewers. The bright spot. Yes. TLC, though. This is crazy. TLC was the year's biggest percentage gainer. 13% in total viewers. They were up. TLC. So the, the sky is falling. Double-digit losses across cable mm-hmm. everywhere. But TLC is up 13% in total viewers and up 12% in 18 to 49. Right. Incredible. Incredible. And then Hallmark Channel up 4% in total audience. Lifetime and Bravo were up 1%. They were up. And WeTV was up 9% amid a sea of declines. Yes. So you look at who did rise – and those that rose were predominantly, other than Hallmark, mm-hmm. predominantly reality-driven networks. That's right. Lifetime, of course, has their movies and whatnot. But Bravo being up, WeTV being up, and TLC being up in a, in a world where no one is up anymore. Right. So it shows more and more that the shift is going to probably stay with reality and cable. It's cheaper. You can repeat it up and down the lineup. What was your takeaway when you looked at all these different stats? First of all, I'm not surprised. And the metrics on the other side are not necessarily more favorable. And by that, I mean there is no uniform standard for how we're looking at things anymore. I talk to my clients about ratings all the time. And it would be nice if there was just a clear picture of what constitutes a success or a failure, but there's just not anymore. And so many other factors go into a network or a platform's decision as to whether they're going to proceed with a show, renew a show, whatever. But, you know... I look at how Netflix is changing their metrics, you know, going from watching 70% of an episode to just intentionally deciding to watch two minutes of content. Hmm. And that counts as a view, just as it does for YouTube and for BBC's iPlayer. So they're trying to create a uniform standard on the streaming side. But this has nothing to do with the the sort of metrics we see in, in traditional cable. And, you know, also just watching things in a linear fashion is obviously not the way of the world anymore unless the moment demands it. So you're watching a live sporting event. You're watching a show maybe like Live PD. Right. You're glued to MSNBC or Fox News depending on you know your politics. Yep. There are certain things that require you to watch things in a certain way that are just not available elsewhere. And you know, on the last podcast we did together, we talked about how Fox was – becoming a modern broadcast network because of, they were leaning into live and event programming and sports and you were touting their WWE deal. We're going to hand out awards later. We're mm-hmm. going to hand out awards later. and WWE is certainly going to be one of those awards that I hand out. Exactly. But we don't really know what story streaming platforms are telling with their viewership in nonfiction. We know if they like something, we know if they don't like something. Companies like Nielsen can try to make a guess as to what their actual viewership is, but it's an educated guess at best. But so really the story we're hearing is that we don't know what's happening on one side of the business and things are declining on the other. And I think it will all make us feel much, much better if we just acknowledge that these numbers are because there's no uniform standard. Well, here's it's, it's really hard to look at them. And this is what I can't get over. And I want to do a documentary about this one day. We're talking about Nielsen ratings. We are talking about a system that influences an entire industry, this one company. And how they, and there's like 3,000 
Nielsen boxes or something like that? I don't know the number, but it's a sample. Uh, it could be anywhere from three to 10,000 people are right. Nielsen families in our country. Right. Have you ever met anybody with a Nielsen box? I haven't. I have not either, right? They exist, but these, these hand-picked people are the people that determine uh-huh. what the ratings are. So this is not – like these are not real numbers. Like the numbers that we go off of here, this is not real. It's, it's what we have. But what I can't get over is that how all the major conglomerates haven't come together, like um, the major carriers, mm-hmm. like AT&T, Comcast, uh, Cox Cable, like all the cable providers haven't come together to just form a joint venture where they – Determine what the ratings are. There's been there's been talk of a uniform standard on the advertising and ratings uh, side of things. It seems like there should be a startup forever. that works in conjunction with all the cable providers that takes information directly from the cable providers of who's watching what because we know that's what's going on and the cable providers know what we're watching. Let's not act like they don't. Right. They have all that information. They know who's watching live. They know who's watching delayed. They know who's watching on DVR. So why couldn't there be a joint company? Kind of how Hulu early on mm-hmm. was a joint venture right. with Fox, Disney, and Universal. Right. It was Noah's Ark for podcast. Yeah. So why couldn't you get like DirecTV and, and, and Comcast and all the other cable providers, all the MSOs together and do a joint venture and share data and say this separate company mm-hmm. that we all have a stake in is now going to tell everybody true reflective ratings? How, good, how is that upstart company not – It's a good question. I mean – Look, they would not be as slow to react if these networks still didn't throw off a ton of cash. Right. The linear television business is still extremely profitable. And, you know, I know there's this sky is falling mentality. They make a lot of money, a lot of money. And what's been really interesting, what I want to talk about, too, is how a lot of people believe that we're about to enter a golden age of AVOD because of that. Mm. And that a place like Netflix, which if you looked at their last – you know, their uh, last quarterly earnings, you know, some people think they've peaked in terms of expansion. They added 500,000 viewers and change in the U.S. Hmm. You know, the vast majority of their efforts are international now. And international, in the international marketplace, their biggest competition is YouTube, which is an AVOD platform. And, yeah, they're not exactly the same in terms of their content offerings, but... What's so compelling to me and what they've professed to be so valuable is the amount of information they have. And they've said that's been for programming efforts. We know so much about our viewers. We can make choices that will appeal to them. I think that they become an advertising business too and once they ultimately have to be profitable. You know, they're one of those unicorn companies that has such a first mover advantage that they're able to not make money. And Mm. Netflix doesn't make money. They're going to spend $18 billion on content this year. Mm. That doesn't mean they're not the smartest shop in town. They are. But in order to justify their continued progress on Wall Street and to investors, at a certain point, they will have to make money. And that means, I think, a lot of people disagree with this. They say they will never do it. I think they will have to sell ads. And I also think that people will tolerate watching ads. You think Netflix will have to sell ads? Yes. Eventually. Eventually. Or offer an ad tier. After the international expansion kind of hits its... Yeah. Yeah. Uh, all right, let's talk ratings real quick just um, in terms of some fun facts mm. um, or some key takeaways just from the numbers themselves. So why did you – really? You have to do the flushing again? Yeah. Now we got to wait 20 seconds again for the cycling <laughs> of the water? You're just messing with me. You're just messing with me. Total viewers, 
one thing I thought was interesting. Mm. Number 38 in total viewers ranking for the past year. Own. Number 39, mm-hmm. BET. I didn't, I didn't think Own was bigger than BET. They have really, I didn't really think that. super served a core audience yeah. with their relationship shows in a way that I think was very intelligent. Yeah. That was, that was one takeaway. Um, but if you look at the 18 to 49 demo, do you think you can name all 10 of the top 18 to 49? It's not on your paper. It's not on my I'm paper. Tell, no, I'm playing, I'm, I'm playing a game with you. Huh. If you had to tell me 18 to 49, top 10 networks, cable ratings for 2019, mm-hmm. who do you think is on that list? Top 10. Throw some out. I would definitely say TLC. Yep, number five. I would. De- I mean, we mentioned ESPN. Yep, that's definitely going to be there. I would say Bravo. Bravo's number six. Mm-hmm. TLC above Bravo. Yeah. Yep. Didn't used to be the case, but also very smart the way they've handled it. Well, they're up twelve percent. Yeah. Now, while Bravo was up in total viewers mm-hmm. a tick, they were down four percent in the demo. Interesting. Bravo was down four percent in the demo. Yeah. TLC was up 12% in the demo. Mm-hmm. The top 10, there's one in here that completely shocks me. I'm going to throw tur- the Turner Nets on there too. They are. Mm-hmm. So ESPN USA, mm-hmm. one and two. Number three and number four, TBS mm-hmm. and TNT. TBS was number three yeah. in the demo in all of cable. TLC was number five, Bravo number six, A&E number seven. Yeah. Only down 1% They've had a really in the demo. Year. Only down 1% in the demo. They have a new hit too. What, Top Dog? Top Dog. Top Dog did well. Which my dog actually watches. I'm not kidding. Elvis watches Top Dog. You have a dog named Elvis? I have a dog named Elvis. You're really good with names. I know. A dog named Elvis. Daughter named Goldie. Mm-hmm. You do well for yourself. <laughs> Number eight was MTV. Are you sure I do? <laughs> I'm sitting on your toilet right now. Doing that. Good decisions. <laughs> do I? Number, What's happening? Number eight was MTV. Number, yeah. number nine. Mm. And this is what's incredible, considering it was 23% down in the demo. Adult Swim is the number nine. Yeah. It's the number nine, 18 to 49 cable network. Good for them. Did That's not right. know that. And number 10 was Discovery Channel. <laughs> History, direct competitor Discovery was number 14, down 10% in the demo. Another takeaway uh, was uh, ID. Yeah. ID was down 15% in the demo. And they've had more competition than okay. too. That's a lot of ratings talk. I think we highly technical. I think we cover that. One last thing, though, for all you parents out there: Disney Channel, formerly the number two basic cable network, posted the largest year-to-year viewership decline: thirty percent total audience drop. They dropped all the way down to number twenty-eight. Disney Junior logged the second biggest year-to-year drop: twenty-five percent total audience. A quarter of their audience gone. Yeah, thirty percent of the audience on on Disney Channel gone. Those are linear rating declines as younger viewers flock to Disney Channel's app or website. They're mm-hmm. obviously all going to Disney Plus and whatnot. Obviously, yeah. My children don't even understand the concept of live television. Yeah. Like they know we watch the 49ers games live. Right. They get that. But when it comes to a show of theirs, when I've actually turned on live TV, the, oh, let's just see what's on and what, what we get lucky with concept for a five-year-old. Does not compute. They cannot fathom it. They don't understand no. it. No. All right, people moving on. You want to talk about this curse thing? You want to talk about the curse of my podcast? You, you've been looking forward to this ever since it got brought there, up. There's a disproportionate number of people that have changed jobs after appearing on this podcast. I've only had this podcast for like, I don't know, four years or something like that, close to four years. And if you just look at my guests, these are just my guests that I've had on who have moved jobs since coming on my podcast. 
But the reason I bring this up is because it's a trend. I just feel like there's more movement than ever with executives. So just from my podcast alone, Rachel Brill moves from Epics to Bleacher Report. Jonathan Koch no longer with Asylum. Jen O'Connell left Lionsgate, went to HBO Max. Jane Latman was at ID, now oversees HGTV. Elliot Goldberg has left AMC. Sharon Levy is no longer at Spike, obviously. She's been at Endemol Shine for some time now. Leslie Greif, no longer at Think Factory. And you said I forgot somebody. Is there somebody else that was on my podcast that left? Yeah. Who? You! What do you mean? I didn't leave. You got interviewed by Shanfield, Matt Shanfield, on your podcast. Yeah. And you left Objective and you went and you started. Yeah, but I was I stayed in the building. I mean, I was still at all three media. Still movement. I didn't leave. No, I mean. Still movement. I mean, the only thing that changed with that was the logo on the shows. I stayed in the same office. I had the same team. Trying to give you more credit. And then people like Jim Ackerman have moved on from CNBC Mm -hmm. and others. I feel like there was just a lot of movement. You know, Amy Savitsky changed. I, I, I referenced that earlier. Am I crazy? I just feel like there's a lot of like musical chairs this year in terms Constant. of like comings and goings. Constant. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's the effect of the consolidation. Eric Wattenberg just left yeah. uh, CAA, wow. and that comes after Scott Lonker had left CAA, and they both joined Wheelhouse with, with my boy Brett Montgomery. Mm-hmm. And I say my boy like as if like we hang out all the time, yeah. you know, but former guest on the show. Yeah. Um, a lot of movement, man. Yeah. Would Brett Montgomery be sitting on the toilet right now in your bathroom for the podcast? Great call. No, yeah. I can tell you Brett Montgomery would not be sitting on the toilet in my bathroom. He would He would have gotten the F out. Okay, got if, it. If, if things had gone haywire with the microphones, two minutes into that, Brett Montgomery would be like, Jimmy, right. I don't sit on toilets. What are you doing? What am, I'm going to give you an hour of my time sitting in your hotel bathroom. Right. I did buy your beer, though. You did? I did pay I for your beer that. downstairs yeah, at the was, bar. That was gracious. At the lovely Sheraton. Trends. Yes. These are some things that I picked up on. Yes. How much time? What time is it right now? 12.53. Okay. We got to get going pretty soon. Okay. Let's do it. Showrunner versus filmmaker. Yeah. Movement and unscripted. I feel like more than ever, filmmakers now are the ones that people want to bring in. True documentarians are the ones they want in the role of a showrunner. Mm -hmm. And the showrunner movement, so to speak, has finally, for the first time in years, started to kind of hit a wall Mm -hmm. because now – more and more cable networks like, no, 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 we want a filmmaker. We want a documentarian. Right. We want to be prestige. We want to be premium. So even though you might be a showrunner that's done a very good show previously, mm-hmm. we want a filmmaker who's maybe never done multi-part television, right. who's never worked on a condensed schedule, which is what we have to do when we do multi-part television. Mm-hmm. And I've experienced this personally where you bring in a documentarian who's never done these types of shows, but you look at their documentaries and you're like, man, these are artful. Right. These are beautiful. Yeah. But then they have no idea how to do multi-part. They have no idea how to like work within the confines of our budget. They have no idea how to take network notes. But these are the people that the networks are telling us to go get. Right. And then us on the production company side have to literally train some of these documentarians for the first time. Uh-huh. And then what ends up happening is just like, you know, go with God. Chaos. It might work out. It might not. Right. Right. But for years, there were more shows in production than there were good showrunners. Mm-hmm. So it was a really time to be in that supervising producer, co-EP right. time in your career because you're going to be made a showrunner way too soon. Good for them. Not so good for us on the production company side <laughs> right. that there's like more shows than there are good people out there to run, run them. Mm-hmm. But I feel like this kind of segues into the next trend I noticed, which is staffing at the agencies mm-hmm. has seemed to be a ballooning business. Am I wrong in that? No. It, agencies like that business. It affords you a lot of capabilities. I mean, first and foremost, it's information. When you're talking to more places about what they're making, that informs the way you sell content. So that's really valuable. Um, also, it's it's a cash flow question. You know, just as you get paid last when you produce a show, 
that means agencies get paid last. And as you're employing people on that show, there is cash flow throughout the course uh, of those productions. And across enough productions and at a big enough scale, it can become meaningful to an agency. Another uh, trend I saw, music content seems to be king. You have the Justin Bieber 10-parter that went to YouTube. Right. Like more and more, you're seeing these big, massive deals. Right. Billie Eilish with Apple. Billie Eilish. Mary J. Blige with Amazon. Was there a Taylor Swift project too? Netflix, yeah. Right? Uh So there's these giant miniseries that are just like going for absorbent amounts of money in production. And it kind of just connects with something we talked about last year, which is it's all about talent packaging. Yes. And right now, the music industry more than ever, because that's where – the younger audience is. Mm-hmm. That is an audience that is already getting most of their content from YouTube, which is a big music platform. Right. They are the savvier audience that is already going to be on OTT platforms. And you've got talent that can promote that piece of content yeah. across multiple platforms themselves to you, get the word out about the show. You can super serve an audience with a great limited or even a feature about one of their favorite artists. But you look at the companies making those deals, it's Apple, you know, it's Amazon, both of whom have enormous music capabilities. That was so, a big deal for YouTube too. That 10-parter for Justin Bieber is a massive deal. Absolutely. But, and, and, but, and but music, music being, for YouTube is such a big huge vertical, business big and vertical. such a big vertical that, that that is the cost of doing business. And, you know, the thing that it just reminds me of is that, you know, for the most part, these are companies that don't have to make money from this sort of of programming. Mm-hmm. These are companies that have a different agenda. They're looking at you as a customer and the way they serve their customers by offering more to get you into their ecosystem. That's what mm-hmm. Amazon does with Prime. That's what Apple's doing now with TV Plus. Mm-hmm. And that's what you know YouTube does too, mm-hmm. to, uh, to some extent. You're sort of in the Google universe. But when you don't have to make money and when you have other businesses that are reliant on that talent, it's the cost of doing business. Another trend, the end of back-end points and moving into buyouts. Yes. Now, we know, for those that have sold to the Netflixes and Amazons and YouTubes, they actually pay you. I guess you call it buyout, but they call it a premium. Right. But essentially, you can consider it a back-end buyout. Right. They pay you up front as you're making the show. Upon delivery, you get paid immediately a designated, negotiated percentage of the budget that is essentially supposed to represent what you would make in back-end had you sold this to a linear cable network or broadcast right. network traditionally after it has sold internationally, after you've made money on format sales or finished tape sales, right? right. It takes the place of what we used to get in back-end with the traditional networks. And at some places, it's immediately – at some places, it's baked in right. to, to – To the budget. To, or baked in the budget but also you know, in success. Right. It's basically – so season three, season four. Then you start to realize that too. And on the scripted side, and I know this is an unscripted podcast, but on the scripted side, there's, this is a big movement. So Disney and other uh, vertically integrated studios that own you know broadcast networks and whatnot, they are trying to get out of the back end negotiation mm-hmm. world, and they are now. And these are traditional broadcast networks. If you go sell a comedy to ABC, ABC Studios, if they are your studio, they are trying to offer you. Basically, a, a buyout payment that is negotiated, and that takes the place of your back-end fee because they don't want to be audited years later when something sells to syndication mm-hmm. or ABC were to sell it you know, to Netflix or some other platform. They don't want to be audited later. And we have a, a business that has a long history of producers having quote-unquote back-end points and then being told many, many years later that the show was never profitable. Who wants to be a millionaire? 
best example of this. Mm -hmm. I was talking to a, a lawyer recently uh, who represented the creator of Who Wants to Be a Millionaire. It was a fascinating conversation. Mm -hmm. I should probably get him on the podcast sometime. And there was a lawsuit. And there was a lawsuit with ABC. Now, this guy created the format abroad, mm -hmm. had already got it set up in many, many different countries when it came to America. And ABC was standing by the fact that like, no, your back end's not worth anything. The show hasn't made any money. And this is Who Wants to Be a Millionaire in 1999. And they're saying, no, the show's not making any money. And it went on for years. Okay, like McDonald's things, like merchandising, right. you know, many, many cycles of the show. And they were telling this guy, no, it's not worth anything. Right. So this guy sued them, and this went on for years, years and years and years and years and years. And most of these lawsuits or you know, uh, legal entanglements normally don't go anywhere because the cost of paying your lawyers to take those cases to court costs tens of millions of dollars. Uh -huh. But this guy had already made bank in other so countries. He could it. actually afford to litigate it. And it went the distance and he got a massive, massive right. settlement, right? right? And the networks, they don't want to be in that position anymore. My, my favorite example of this is Spinal Tap, mm -hmm. which I also think should be its own documentary, this, this one case. Harry Shearer, who mm -hmm. had famously been a voice on The Simpsons forever and was one of the cast members of Spinal Tap, after years and years and years, okay, this is like within the last two years, Spinal Tap was made in what, early 80s? Yeah. Early mid 80s, right? Let's get an example. I'm gonna get, okay, let's play the game. I'm going to guess Spinal Tap was made in 84. I'm going to say 82. There we go. Brian's looking it up. 84. You nailed it. Dude, guys, come on. They don't just give anybody a podcast. They do, actually. They do. Um, Spinal Tap, made in 84. Uh -huh. To this day, Rob Reiner, Michael McKeon... Uh, Christopher Guest, Harry Shearer, all the people that had points in that movie were told it's never made a dollar. Right. Spinal Tap mm -hmm. had never made a dollar. We're talking DVD sales, merchandising, soundtrack sales, never made a dollar. So Harry Shearer was finally like, you know what? F this. I've made my Simpsons money. I'm taking these guys to court. And there is – and I don't – it may have settled, but he had to take them to court to finally get paid the back-end points on Spinal Tap. Yeah. So studios have been through these lawsuits enough now – and been audited enough now by their partners where they don't want to do that anymore. So they're now trying to adopt what Netflix and these OTTs have been doing from the beginning, which is paying a premium in place mm -hmm. of back end. It's, it's not just to avoid litigation. It's because people are gravitating to the upfront money. Yeah. You know, if, if the marketplace is such that there is no international possibility or – syndication possibilities in the way that, you know, Dick Wolf enjoyed, then a payout is likely your best scenario. You may stand to make less overall, but if you're Seth MacFarlane, if you're J.J. Abrams, if you're Greg Berlanti, and you're still making hundreds of millions of dollars and it's guaranteed, then it's likely the better choice for you. So it's not just to, you know, avoid the complication of litigation, which I agree is nuts. When you see these back-end statements, they are... Complete nonsense. And, I, and it, it is daring people to audit them and to sue them. And unless you have the means of doing that, you will get screwed. That is just the way of the world right now. And there's usually one a year. But um, I, I, I'll just a real, real quick anecdote because I don't think I've ever told this story on the show. When I was at CAA, there was a moment every year that happened among the assistants. The assistant working on Adam Berkowitz's desk, who was a big packaging agent, 
in the sitcom and scripted space. Once a year, the assistant on that desk would send out an email. It was an all-assistant, all-TV assistant email. And it would say, the check is here if you want to see it. And I didn't know what this was. Like, I was a rookie assistant. I was like, what are we talking about? So I go over to the desk, and I'm like, what? Jamie, who was the assistant at the time, I'm like, what, what is the check? And she puts it up. And it's like the scene in 16 Candles, <laughs> another bathroom scene. Where Anthony Michael Hall lifts up Molly Ringwald's underwear for all the boys to look at. Uh-huh. She holds up this check and it's a $25 million check. Around there. 20-something million dollar check to Phil Rosenthal yeah. for his back, his back points Raymond. on Everybody Loves Raymond. And Adam Berkowitz had packaged that. Incredible. Never again. All right. We got to – never <laughs> again. Uh, all right. Let's hand out some awards. Let's do it. Let's hand out some awards. These are the not real screen awards. The not real screen awards. Okay? These are just Jimmy and Brian. The What Goes Around Comes Around Award. Ads. This, ads. this was your award. Yeah. Hand it out, Brian. So I want to give the award to ads because everyone has believed over the past couple of years that ad-supported content is going the way of the dodo. And I think it's just increasingly clear that we will all be consuming more ads because we don't want to pay for things that are actually very expensive. Hmm. Right now, the companies that are supplying us the things that we love do not make money doing it. And again, that's going to have to change at a certain point, And that means that they're going to have to monetize their data. So in the next two to three years, when real screens in Austin and we've got a whole new bathroom to enjoy, <laughs> um, I wouldn't be surprised if, if we were watching more ads. Uh, the next award, the I don't want to tell you I told you so, uh-huh. but I told you so award goes to me for predicting the WWE <laughs> deal with Fox would be genius, which it is. It dominates Friday night's. On network television, it's number one in the demo, and I said when it happened, it had a low ceiling but a very high floor. And it has brought in that core audience, and they are winning every Friday night, and Fox does not need to worry about Friday night 52 weeks a year. Beautiful. The, huh, why didn't that work award this year goes to World's Best on CBS. Hmm. I remember this time last year, uh, it was after the Super Bowl. Yep. And I... I don't know how you felt at the time. I thought World's Best was going to be great. I, I thought they've got James Corden. Mm-hmm. It's on CBS. It's Mark Burnett. It's Mike Darnell. I thought the set design, production design looked awesome. I loved the kind of um, one versus 100 kind mm-hmm. of big panel of international, uh, you know, kind of judge, not judges, but like voters or whatever. Mm-hmm. You know, they, they, it was like a point system. I really loved everything about how it looked. And I remember tuning in that night after the Super Bowl and being like, this is this is fun. Like this is fun. This is mm-hmm. as enjoyable as America's Got Talent. Like I'm I'm in. Right. And it just didn't stick. Right. And it did not work. And I was like, oh, I no longer have any rhyme or reason for what works <laughs> and what doesn't anymore. There's no barometer. Did you did you think it was going to work? I didn't. You didn't. Mm-hmm. Now why did? Okay, tell me why you were pessimistic about it from the beginning. That show was all about auspices. And hmm. you've got to hand it to CBS and to Darnell and to Burnett for putting together an A-level show. I mean, from top to bottom, you knew every part of that show. I just think that show's already on the air and that viewers know that. And that even though this riff on it was a really well-intentioned one and, you know, a smart try for sure, um, it just seems like it's still America's Got Talent at the end of the day. Mm. And by the way, one versus 100 was a much smaller success story when compared to Deal No Deal. 
And so to me, it was like the best possible. I just show meant, I just meant the formation of the panel. Like that, I, one versus a hundred is the only example I can give of that. No, many no, bodies. no, that's important though yeah, because yeah. it's like the that, Muppets uh, opening titles. <laughs> right. you know? But that that device though, I don't think was game changing enough for mm-hmm. an AGT audience. Right. All right, the Gone Too Soon Award. Yeah. Pour some little, pour some liquor out. We're gonna spill a forty right now. Mm. The Gone Too Soon Award goes to. Can I spill it into the tub? Vanderpump Rules. Jimmy Fox wow. and Missy Fox's favorite End guilty pleasure. Era. It's the eighth season, I believe, and it came back, and it is just not the same because yeah. half the cast now are married and live in the Valley and bought homes in the Valley, and you know they're going to be parents in like five minutes, <laughs> and that does not make for great television when you've been watching them be just you know basket cases uh, and S-shows for so long in their late 20s and early 30s. They're growing up. But and, – and they've got these new cast members that they've included now and it's like Dana with a Y and I'm supposed to care about Dana with a Y now. And, and the first episode, I thought a lot of these new character stories were – seemed more contrived than I've ever seen anything on Vanderpump Rules before. And I love this show. But guys, I watch it now and I have like a stomachache. It's a stomachache of like knowing your girlfriend's going to break up with you and knowing that the relationship is not on solid footing and it's just a matter of time before this ends. And that's what, I watch, that's what I watch now with Vanderpump Rules. I feel like it's, it's not going to last forever now. And we are seeing the shift where these guys have pretty much aged themselves out of the show um, in terms of, like, their lifestyles. Trouble in paradise. It's unfortunate. Mine is just yeah, what's because yours? I loved it so much. Mm. Don't fuck with cats on Netflix. How's three, that gone too soon? Three episode limited. Oh, 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 yeah. Yeah, I loved every minute of it. People are loving that show. Have you seen it? No, I've not seen it yet. And it's made by a sister company in Raw, which is an all three media company. Out of this bathroom. People love this show. And watch it immediately. I know. People love it. Everything about it is fantastic. And um, Raw did an absolutely amazing job. They're awesome. So, so interesting. Raw, by the way, the same people behind Three Identical Strangers. Mm. I mean, that's not a bad. Yeah. It's not a bad point. Not a bad stat sheet there uh, for those guys. Rookie of the Year. Last award we're going to hand out. The Rookie of the Year Award. Marie Kondo. Yeah. Marie Kondo in 2019 burst on the scene, penetrated pop culture. This is what's reflective of the state of our business in reality. So as I was considering the Rookie of the Year award, I, I like went out in the office and I asked like you know the people that work for me and, and other people in the office. I was like, hey, I'm thinking of Rookie of the Year award, which would be a new show that debuted in 2019 uh, for my next podcast. Who's got some ideas? Like what are, what are like the 2019 shows that we feel was mm-hmm. like you know, a, a lot of buzz that people really seem to love? I got like three different answers, and it mm-hmm. was like Marie Kondo, The Circle, mm-hmm. uh, which is made by Studio Lambert, sister company, Dating Around, mm-hmm. and the hip-hop competition show. Rhythm and Flow. Rhythm and Flow. Uh-huh. All on Netflix. When I asked people, tell me a buzzy 2019 show, I got four Netflix suggestions. Mm-hmm. What does that tell you? I think you're seeing where the eyeballs are going for the most part. It's that, but it's also how hard it is to launch a new show. With new characters mm-hmm. and new stories on traditional cable. What is rating on cable right now are spinoffs, derivatives, Nostalgia. or shows that are grandfathered in like Housewives and That's other shows right. that have been on the air forever. And, and Live PD or Live PD spinoffs and whatnot, even though Live PD is a you know, recent launch. Right. It's hard to launch a new show and penetrate pop culture on basic cable because these were the shows that came to mind. All of those cable networks, and we've talked about their ratings and their performance, but they're effectively universes. You know, 
I think the Chris McCarthy strategy is a double down on nostalgia across the board. Yeah, I'm all for that. I am all for it, too. I'm all for I, it. I think it works for them. Bring back I, remote control. I think that a- Annie, by the way, has always done this. There was the Duck Dynasty era. There was the Leah Remini era. Now there is the Live BD era. Mm-hmm. And they're very smart about, again, super serving a particular audience. But because Netflix is a total ecosystem for every kind of viewer, anyone can find something they like there. And so it would stand a reason that more people are saying, yeah, I like this or I like that. Yeah. Because in general, it offers more things to more people. But you know what's interesting, though, is like when you look at these shows, some of them, not all of them, but a lot of the shows I see on Netflix, they just do a great job of buying shows that literally don't have another home. Mm-hmm. Like they are buying shows that just wouldn't be on other networks. Like That's right. the shows I love, like the uh, toys that made us mm-hmm. and the movies that made us, those would not be on any other networks right now. That would not sell in cable. Well, I think I think you'll see a lot of cable networks try to do their versions of it right. now that it's been successful. And it's going to seem small. Like if I pitched the toys that made us right now, uh-huh. they'd uh, seem small. But for me, the question is, could those shows have been successful? On history? In cable. No, no. I mean – I'm just thinking what networks would even make sense for that. But Dating Around, just the flip side, hmm. Dating Around was the show know. that was the convention everyone wanted. And I love Dating Around, yeah. first of all. Yeah. I think that Eureka did an amazing job on it. Awesome. I know. I think that – you know, the guidance they received from Netflix, too, about how to make it. And it was inspired from Master of None. I mean, it was just yeah. – everything was sort of baked into Netflix in that. But relationship shows, typically at broadcast, had to either be fairy tale driven or super raunchy if they were more, more cable skewing. I think Netflix took chances on the things that a lot of people have been pitching for a long time. That's true. But other places have just been hesitant to do. Agreed. So were there opportunities for these things to succeed elsewhere? Yeah, there were. Agreed. But Netflix took the shot. Also, like, Rhythm and Flow was probably pitched a million times. But it was sold a million times. The cable networks couldn't afford to make a show like that. Yeah. And broadcast networks were not going to make a hip hop show. So it was like a good idea that didn't have a network with the budget to make it in cable. And a broadcast network that actually wants to just go for that audience. And also, Although Fox could have made the crap out of that show when they launched Empire. Sure. Fox could have done that show. Sure. Yeah. But also the broadcast networks know who they want to reach and how to reach them. Netflix is, I think, they know who they're reaching and they're yeah. still figuring out who they can reach. Mm. And so for them, again, we don't know how these shows are performing. But regardless of how they perform, it affords them enough information to make a smart next move. Marie Kondo, congratulations, Rookie of the Year Award. All right, finally, I'm just going to talk about 2020. Mm-hmm. I did this last year. It has nothing to do with the business. This is just me looking at the year ahead, uh-huh. just talking about things I'm excited about. What are you going to do? I'm excited about certain things. Uh, I'm going to go see Green Day and Weezer at Wrigley Field. That's fun. In Chicago, mm-hmm. going with my wife. My brother and his wife are going to go. Beautiful. Can't wait. I'm excited about Steph Curry and the Warriors. Return to championship form when they're all back from injuries. The Bill and Ted movie? Yeah. Dude. Yeah. Are you with me on this? I'm with you. Bill and Ted, each with daughters? Yeah. Father-daughter movie? Could not be more fitting, but... Cannot wait. Keanu Reeves back as Ted? There's nothing not to like. Come on. But there's something I'm more excited to see with you. Dun, 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 Dude. You can be my wingman anytime. BS. <laughs> you can be mine. <laughs> Top Gun. I'm with you on Top Gun, too. There were, okay, can we talk about this? Can we break down this trailer? Yes. Okay. 
the era of dogfighting being like a past thing mm-hmm. – and we live in this world of like drone warfare now. So the need for a dogfighter from the past to teach these young pups uh-huh. the art of dogfighting, I'm in. I'm yeah. in on the premise. I'm fully in. I love it. I love Mav is back in an instructor role. I'm in. It's here's, what, here's what I'm not in for. Hmm. And I've talked about this on the podcast previously. I don't think Miles Teller is the right son of Goose. Mm. Okay. I think Miles Teller has a little too much bravado to be the son of Goose. Okay. But I get it. You got to cast somebody good in that role. Okay. I can let that slide. A couple of the moments with like Cruz when he's in like it looks like a boardroom or something. Mm-hmm. He's like in a general's office, commanding officer's uh-huh. office. Those were like a couple of those sound bites were a little cringeworthy. Like it was a little too. Is this an SNL sketch or is this like a real movie that's about to happen? Yeah. Everything else looked amazing. I was at the theater to go see 1917, and they showed like a, a three minute short the trailer. on the behind yeah. the scenes of the actual oh, wow. flight, how they shot real life. In airplane flight in the jets and and what went into that behind the scenes, it looks incredible. Like the actual flight photography looks amazing. They're really in the jets. But a couple of those sound bites and dialogue with Cruz in that first trailer was a little iffy. A little tidbit for you. Uh Not many people know this, but they shot that movie like Bowfinger. Tom Cruise had no idea he was making a movie. That's just how he lives his life. (laughs) Okay? That's how he talks. That's what he does during the day. All right? They just pointed and shot, and that's what they got. All right? I'm so so excited. (laughs) so funny. I'm so excited to see how they treat Iceman. Because I know Val Kilmer is going to have a cameo. He's back? He's going to have a cameo, but Val Kilmer is not in great health um, with his voice. His Mm -hmm. voice is pretty much gone now. I I had the pleasure of getting to know Val, actually, over the last year. I was trying to do a project with him, and I got to know him. He's an amazing man. Still has all the charisma, yeah. but he has essentially lost his voice. It's very, very, very uh, hard to yeah. understand him in certain cases because mm-hmm. he had throat cancer. Right. But he is going to be in Top Gun. Can he still as, do this? As uh, Tom Kaczynski. Tom Kaczynski, right? Isn't that his name? Tom Kaczynski. Isn't that, his, isn't that Iceman's real name? It was Tom Kaczynski and Pete Mitchell, yeah. Right. I should have just quit ahead when I got the 1984 Spinal Tap reference. Yeah. Uh, Stranger Things season four, super excited about that. Beautiful. I think it's I think it's gonna be holiday themed. I think last year was a Fourth of July theme. I think this year is gonna be Christmas themed. Beautiful. Uh, more live in front of a studio audience. Uh-huh. More movies and toys that made us. The Saved by the Bell reboot. Mm-hmm. Peacock, sister show. Can't wait. My prediction: Fantasy Island, which is gonna come out on Valentine's weekend. It is a horror take on the classic CBS show. I believe it was a CBS show. I think Fantasy Island is going to be a massive hit and is going to become a franchise, a horror franchise to come. And your last prediction was? I think this is Jaleel White's year. (laughs) And what I just haven't figured out is, is it a 10-episode Netflix series or is it... I did do that, the documentary about Family Matters. I don't know if we need a Family Matters doc, but I I would love a doc on... And I think you can if, look if you can do the movies that made us, you can do a doc on actors that are synonymous with one role, and how it either haunted them or was the best thing that ever happened to them. I, I think you could do that with Jaleel. There's a couple other character actors out there that are known for one specific role. Right. You know, I feel like that could be a great doc. Don't broaden this out. <laughs> this is just about me and Urkel, and I think America and the world is ready. What time? What to time? See him again. What time? It do you is okay. Real quick. 19. Real quick. Last thing. Yeah. I have a Jaleel, uh, Jaleel White anecdote. So when I was doing, <laughs> of course you do. When I was doing Hollywood Darlings, <laughs> Hollywood Darlings, Jaleel White was obviously on like the must-have book list. Like uh-huh. we had to book Jaleel White to do a, to do a cameo. Bro, D 
dealing with his agent, uh-huh. you would have thought I was booking Denzel Washington to come do a pop network show. The amount of red tape yeah. and qualifiers that this agent asked for on behalf of Jaleel mm-hmm. was insane. We couldn't mention Family Matters. We couldn't mention Steve Urkel. And it was – this was uh, – Pop Network, uh, Hollywood Darks, it was pretty much a scripted show that yeah. we shot on an unscripted budget. So everybody knew what the storyline was going to be mm-hmm. coming in. We weren't going to catch, you know, Jaleel off guard with anything. Right. And the scene was just like him bumping into Beverly Mitchell, one of our main characters, mm-hmm. at like a store. That was the scene. It was a one, it was a one quick scene. Dude, I – I was like – it was crazy. I never dealt with anything like it before in my life. And I don't and – here's, and here's the moral of the like story. You can't always Christian judge – you can't always judge the talent by, by their the reps. reps. Yes, that's true. Because when Jaleel got to set, mm-hmm. he was a freaking joy. Mm-hmm. He was easy. He was funny. He showed up. He was in on the joke. He knew exactly what kind of show we were making. Right. And he was great. Right. And everybody had a great experience. But the amount of – you can only have him for this many hours in the day and you can't mention this and don't mention this. And the amount of negotiating that went into it. Made all of us think this guy is going to be a nightmare. Right. Which also goes back to show, choose your reps wisely. Yes. Because people will judge you before you get into that room based on the conversations they've had with your reps preceding that meeting. That's the best advice I can get. I'm just happy Jaleel could change your mind. I think he'll do it again with a Netflix series. And I think the world is ready. Dude, thanks for doing this. Dude. Thanks for sitting. Great to be back. Give me a toilet flush one more time just for good measure. Too good to me. Thanks, peeps. We're out.